In the spring of 1940, the German army was storming across Europe. America had not yet officially entered the war, but that seemed inevitable. Just a couple of decades before this, the U.S. Army had fought in World War I on the backs of horses. But this was a different time, and this was a dramatically new kind of war. They needed a new vehicle. The U.S. Army sent out an RFP, a request for proposals, to all the automakers in America. There were 134 of them. The Army needed a mechanical replacement for the horse. Specifically, they asked for a truck that could handle rough terrain and climb steep hills, could pull a cart loaded with a big gun, and that didn't weigh more than a big horse, 2,000 pounds max. They gave the automakers 49 days to respond, not with a design sketch. The Army wanted a functioning prototype in less than two months. The American Bantam Car Company from Butler, Pennsylvania took up the challenge. They were a small outfit on the brink of bankruptcy. They were desperate, and this was their last chance to stay in business. Their existing car was called the Bantam Speedster. Compared to other vehicles on the road, though, it was small and underpowered. But they beefed up the suspension, painted it green, and called it the Bantam Reconnaissance Car. They drove it 300 miles from their factory in Pennsylvania to the Army's training grounds in Maryland. And when they arrived, they were the only ones there. The big car makers had said the timeline was too rushed. And the small companies didn't have the manufacturing capabilities. The Bantam Car Company was the only one to come through with a prototype. For a week, soldiers drove it over hills, through ditches, and across rivers. There wasn't much left of it when they were done, but the people who had been driving it loved it, unanimously. So, the Army put in an order for 300,000 of them. 300,000 cars. Now, this should have been the greatest day in the history of the Bantam Car Company. It should have been the contract that saved the company. But there was a problem. You see, Bantam had never built more than 500 vehicles in a year. That's one six hundredth of the new order. They were totally unprepared to deliver on a contract of that size. But what could they do? They dug in and started building them as fast as they could. They churned out about 300 before the army grew impatient. Now, what happened next is debatable. Either Bantam was so patriotic and dedicated to the war effort that they handed their designs over to a couple of larger manufacturers to increase production, Ford and Willis Overland, or the Army simply gave their plans to those other car companies without their permission. Either way, those two larger manufacturers started rolling these vehicles off their assembly lines and they quickly became an essential part of the war effort. Now, they didn't call them Bantam Reconnaissance cars, though. They just called them General Purpose Vehicles. And the soldiers, being soldiers, started using an acronym. So they called them GPs, or more commonly, Jeeps. So yeah, even though they invented one of the most popular automotive brands in American history, a vehicle that was essential to winning the war, Bantam never really made any money off of it. In fact, 
they were out of business within a decade. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. This series is about science. It's about history, and it's about what modern science can learn from history. Along the way, we check in with some 1950s newsreels, like this one. Frontiers of Science, a series of information films presented as a public service. I like playing those because it's a great reminder that, you know, even though today we think we're in this fast-moving, technologically advanced age, if you go back 70 years, people thought the exact same thing about their world. And the crazy thing is, they were right too. Documenting the latest developments in medicine and science in the space age. But when they were looking to the future, they were looking at us. The future can be found in many places. It can be seen reflected in the eyes of those who are privileged to look at it. In a way, that's what we're doing. Looking at today through the eyes of people in the past who were looking at the future. It kind of makes you dizzy, doesn't it? This podcast is an original production by Symar. They're looking to the future as well, but they're doing it in a medical research laboratory. And specifically, they're exploring a paradigm shift in the way we view diabetes. Part of what we're doing is using the lessons from the past to better understand what Symar is doing today. And what better story from history could we possibly use than that of diabetes research pioneers Frederick Banting and Charles Best? This is Episode 8, Giving It All Away. In what was then a small town called London, Ontario, Canada, there was a young man named Frederick Banting. That's Banting, not Bantum. Frederick is not related to the car makers. The names are just a coincidence. But their stories do, coincidentally, end up having one very important thing in common. We'll get to that in a minute. Back to Banting. His family were farmers. Not poor, but not rich. He went to college, a general arts program, but flunked out in his first year. He tried to join the army, but was turned away because of his poor eyesight. Twice. So, he took the only option available to him, medical school. Now, today that seems weird, right? Getting into medical school when you couldn't get into the army. But this was 1912. The war is coming and the army is desperate for doctors. They fast-tracked his class. And off he went to Europe to be a surgeon in a field hospital. After the war, he opened up a medical practice and was, well, not all that successful. He also taught some classes at the local university. So by 1920, he was doing fine. Not poor, not rich, just fine. One day, he had to deliver a lecture to a class about the pancreas. Fred, as his friends called him, didn't really know much about the pancreas. I mean, his training was focused on patching up wounded soldiers, and there wasn't a lot of attention to pay to a squishy little organ tucked behind the stomach just below the liver. It rarely got shot. So, he did some reading. He read articles by all the leading experts at the time to find out what they knew about the pancreas. And he learned a couple of things. First of all, that a lot of people believed that a healthy pancreas secreted something that controlled blood sugar, and that without it, people would develop diabetes. 
He also learned that no one had been able to extract that something from the pancreas to use it as a medicine. And what that meant was, if you have diabetes, it's incurable. You've seen those kids in the wards. Little kid gets diabetes mellitus. There's nothing we can do. It's a death sentence. That's from a 1958 movie called The Quest. You'll be hearing a whole bunch of clips from that film because it does a really nice job of setting up this whole story. Good luck, Fred. Thank you. After reading all those papers, Fred Banting had what he thought was a new idea about how to extract that something from the pancreas. So, he approached the director of the teaching hospital at the University of Toronto, a guy named John McLeod, and he pitched his idea. McLeod was skeptical. Dozens of other researchers had spent years on this exact problem, but they never found the magical substance. Banting's theory was that the pancreas was secreting more than just the good stuff that regulated blood sugar. Maybe other stuff was coming out of there as well that interfered with the good stuff or even broke it down. So maybe when everybody else was putting the pancreas through the blender, the good stuff was getting destroyed by their crude methods. So Banting proposed a workaround. I operate on a dog. I tie up the pancreatic ducts. I wait five or six weeks. The asinus cells dry up. There's no more external secretion to destroy the internal secretion of the islet cells. It was spring, and there wasn't much going on at the university. McLeod himself was leaving for Europe in a few days, so he figured, ah, what the heck, and told Banting, sure, you can do your experiment. In fact, he gave him 10 dogs and the use of a lab room for eight weeks. It was a nice little summer project. The catch was, there was no budget and no salary. And that made it a difficult decision for Banting. Two months with no income, nothing saved up. What would I live on? But he decided to give it a shot. In May of 1921, as soon as the students had left for their summer break, Banting got to work. He wasn't alone. He had a graduate student named Charles Best that had agreed to work with him, also without a salary. Their experiment was laid out like this. Divide their 10 dogs into two groups of five. Make one group diabetic by removing their pancreas entirely. But with the other group, they tie off the pancreatic ducts and wait about seven weeks. Then the idea is remove the pancreas, make an extract from it, and use that to treat the diabetic dogs. They started by doing surgeries on all 10 dogs, and that went beautifully. Banting, despite his poor eyesight, was actually a pretty good cut-and-stitch guy. Two years in the military hospital would do that for you. But a few weeks in, a problem arose. Those dogs without pancreases, they started dying. Strange sort of race, isn't it, Charlie? Give a dog diabetes and hope you can keep it alive until you get an extract you hope can help it. The disease was progressing faster than they expected. Stay alive, old girl. For seven weeks, they waited. They lost two of their dogs. Then finally, on the 8th of July, they opened up one of the dogs with a tied-off pancreas. Now, if I've done this properly... You should see a nice, dried-up pancreas with all the asinus tissues withered away. Here we are. Nothing happened. 
hand. The pancreas, it's perfectly normal. Banting had used catgut sutures to tie off the ducts. And just in case you haven't spent a lot of time working with catgut, I should probably mention a couple things. Catgut does not come from cats. It does, however, come from a gut, the intestines of cows and sheep. Now, back in the day, lots of doctors used catgut for surgeries because it would naturally dissolve in the body. And usually that's ideal, but in this case, it was dissolving too quickly. And the ducts, they'd open back up again. Those first seven weeks had been wasted. The scientists had been standing around the lab, imagining the pancreas getting all shriveled up, when in reality, those pancreases were functioning normally. And remember, this is an eight-week project. They'd wasted seven of them. They'd royally screwed up. It was over. They had failed. On top of that, Banting was broke. He hadn't had a paycheck in two months. He even had sold his car and used the money to pay for dog food. He called John McLeod, the medical school's director, to tell him the experiment was a failure and that they had no results. But then, a weird thing happened. Dr. McLeod's not at the London address? Well, I guess we should cable Zurich. No one could reach McLeod. He was in Europe. And, well, this was 1921, and you couldn't just send him a text. And this is brilliant. Since no one's around to kick them out of the lab, Panting and Best keep working. They redid the surgeries on the dogs, tying up their pancreatic ducts again, but this time with silk thread. Four weeks go by, another dog dies, so now they're down to two diabetic dogs, and if they lost those, the whole thing was really over because even if they could isolate a secretion, they wouldn't have a dog to test it on, right? So they had to make a choice. If we operate and find the pancreas hasn't degenerated enough, we can't make the extract. But if we wait and lose any of the other dogs in the meantime... No gamble, Charlie. It's a calculated risk. Let's get on with it. So, they revise their timeline, and after just four weeks, instead of seven, they open up one of the dogs, hoping to find a shriveled-up pancreas. The silk sutures are still in place, and the pancreas looks terrible. It's perfect. Carefully, Dr. Banting removes it. A tiny thing no bigger than your pinky finger. And he hands it to Best to carefully cut it up. They make a serum out of it. And as soon as it's ready, at midnight, that night, they inject one of the remaining dogs. Then they wait. Remember, these dogs without pancreases are diabetic. In other words, their blood sugar levels are too high. The big question is whether the serum will reverse that. An hour later, at 1 o'clock in the morning, they draw blood from the dog, and they check the glucose level. Is it still too high? Sugar content, 3.7. That dog's blood sugar dropped six points in an hour. So they give the dog another shot of serum, and at 2 a.m., they test it again. All night long, hour after hour, test the blood, give another shot. Test the blood, give another shot. They keep doing it, and the dog's blood sugar keeps falling. By morning, that dog's levels are virtually normal. We've done it, Charlie. It's the X hormone, the anti-diabetic principle. We've proven it and isolated it. 
Now, yes, it was just one dog, but it had worked. They had shown that the internal secretions of the pancreas, something that would later be named insulin, could be used as a medicine. So what came next? Well, at that point, Banting and Best were the only two people in the world that knew about their discovery. If this were a crime novel, one of them would have killed the other one and made off with the secret discovery to make millions and millions of dollars, but that's not what happened. Now, they could have patented their discovery, started a pharmaceutical company and mass-produced the stuff, selling their miracle drug for millions. But that's not what happened either. But Fred, there are thousands and thousands of diabetics. They'll come flocking here from all over the world. And for a long while, there won't be enough. Not nearly enough. So what they decided to do was give it away. They told anyone and everyone what they had done how they had done it, and what they saw. They encouraged others to replicate their experiments. And as a result, hundreds of people, the scientific community as a whole, started working on a way to manufacture this miracle drug more efficiently. They sold the patent for insulin to the University of Toronto for $1. Frederick Banting said at the time, Insulin does not belong to me. It belongs to the world. That quote and that act of selflessness is often pointed to as the way all researchers should act. But is it really the best option? Remember, Banting's goal was to get insulin mass-produced as quickly as possible. He wanted to make sure that sick people all over the world could get treatment. And in 1921, giving it away was the best way to do that. But does that still apply a hundred years later? In 1940, Bantam Car Company made a great car, but couldn't mass-produce it, so they went bankrupt. Other companies built hundreds of thousands of them, and America won the war. In 1921, Banting and Best discovered insulin, but didn't have the resources to manufacture it in large quantities. So they gave it away, and quickly it was available globally. Well, now it's 2021. So what can we learn from that? Consider this. In 1979, a researcher at a Canadian university makes an incredible observation. We showed that electrical stimulation of the parasympathetic nerves to the liver shut down the glucose that was being continually pumped out by the liver in the fasting stage. That's Dr. Wayne Lott, the founding researcher of Symar. You see, type 2 diabetes is the result of insulin resistance. Your body has insulin but your muscles don't react to it well. They don't pull glucose out of the blood with the same enthusiasm as they should. Dr. Lott observed that triggering certain nerves in the liver caused that organ to release something we now call Hiss, a hormone that increases your insulin sensitivity. In fact, Hiss is an acronym. It stands for Hepatic Insulin Sensitizing Substance. To be able to pursue the idea of the link between the parasympathetic nerves and type 2 diabetes, that seemed like such an obvious thing. I knew that it would be an easy thing to test, but they didn't have funding. He needed specialized lab equipment, additional lab assistants, lots of things he did not have. But it was too promising of an idea to leave sitting on a shelf. So he decided to give it away. There was a journal back then called Medical Hypotheses, 
And it was a journal that the rules were that this was not for publishing science where you've already got the answers. This is for putting out good ideas, raising a challenge, that sort of thing. So he wrote an article for that journal. He described his observation and suggested a methodology to test it out. I was functioning as a pure basic scientist, and part of the philosophy of pure basic science is that you give ideas away, you share them. I got an enormous thrill when anybody would pick up an idea of mine and take it to the next step. And that's what I kept hoping was going to happen here. But it didn't happen. Nothing happened. Not one single researcher took on his challenge. No one was willing to invest the time and energy on such a radical idea. So that was my first attempt to sort of turn it loose. Dr. Lott's career continued, but he always felt he had unfinished business with Hiss. Two decades went by, and finally, with his call to action still ignored, Lott couldn't stop himself from trying again. This is published in a textbook in 2003. The title is New Paradigm for Insulin Resistance. Once thought to act only directly, it now seems that insulin triggers some nerves to release Hiss to function correctly. He spelled out everything he had learned about the process. He even wrote in the article about how a pharma company could make a product and generate profits. We hope prior to eating, one might take a pill to make his release so much better. But again, his ideas were ignored. He was well-established, well-respected. He was a professor at a major university. He had awards and accolades covering the walls of his office. But his idea was just too different. You know, frankly, the major thing that people came up with trying to explain when they would be willing to come on board and believe it is, show me the chemical. It was a catch-22. He couldn't get support without showing physical evidence of the hormone. But he couldn't get that physical evidence without support. That was a, another attempt to give it away. Finally, in 2009, my son suggested that we actually form our own company. And so that's what they did. They formed SIMAR, which stands for Science to Market. In a nutshell, that's the whole point of the company. By establishing a business model that includes generating profits, Lot has been able to attract investors, $9 million worth in the last three years alone. And that has finally allowed him to move the science forward. But it hasn't been easy. Once I decided to take it on myself, then I couldn't give it away anymore. And I find that rather awkward, actually, not being able to talk as freely to people as I might want to on some of the very tricky, very technical issues. I've gone through this complete change from spilling every idea out of my head as fast as I could to anybody that would listen to now focusing on intellectual property and getting the, the welfare of the company so that we can actually get this stuff to market. Because just like Bantam, the car makers, and Banting, the man who discovered insulin, Lot wants to get his discovery mass produced. He wants to see it in the hands of the people who need it. He wants to save people's lives. And ironically, giving it all away just wasn't getting that done. Our next episode is an exciting one. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. It's about how we deal with failure. When you go back to square one, 
We're going to look at what happens if you do everything right, or at least you think everything's right, but then you discover that one concept that was the foundation for everything you did was wrong. That's next time on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for listening. Oh, one last thing. Uh, I don't want you to think that Dr. Fred Banting got nothing out of his discovery. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1923. He was 32 years old, so the youngest person who has ever gotten that award. And that prize comes with a big check. And not to be outdone by the Swedish royal family, the government of Canada also granted Banting a salary for life to continue his work, ensuring that he would never again have to sell his car to buy dog food. Mm-hmm. <laughs>